This is Demo Crises. Democracy, Demography, and Demoralization. I'm Rob Cohen, physician, army veteran, scientist, and your host. So I'm very glad to be joined here by Financial Times columnist Ed Luce for the penultimate episode of season one of Demo Crises. And the reason I'm so glad to welcome Ed in particular is because this season we've soberly looked at America and the West, and we've seen that a lot of our challenges are real and, and getting worse. And um, in 2012, Ed published a book warning us that things were getting really bad. He, in the style of Tocqueville, traveled around America and reported on what was happening, such as the breaking of our bureaucracies, the breaking of our politics, the hollowing out of the middle class. And he reported a book called Time to Start Thinking, which I read at the time, and it's excellent. And in that book, he talks about, he, he says that the Tea Party movement reminded him of America first in the 1930s. Of course, we know how that turned out. Um, so... Ed Luce, thank you for joining us on, Emo, on Demo Crises. It's a delight to be here. Since you've been thinking about this since at least 2012, can, can you briefly summarize your, your 2012 book and what you've been uh, thinking about since then? Sure. Well, the, the, the title of the book, Time to Start Thinking, America and the Spectre of Decline, came from uh, um, a, a famous statement made during the Second World War by a, a British Nobel physicist, a uh, gentleman, we've run out of money. It's time to start thinking. Uh, so slightly, uh, slightly esoteric title, but the, the thesis of the book is not. It's um, about how the hollowing out of the middle of the American economy, the declining fortunes of middle-skilled uh, Americans in the labor market, um, is creating a polarization in the economy that is reflected very much in politics. That the hollowing out of the middle in, in the in the economy is hollowing out the middle in politics, and of course, you know, the middle class are very much the platform, the building block of the um, of, of the greatest sort of decades in American democracy in the twentieth century, um, and so their declining fortunes are are a, a warning sign for the health of American politics. That was essentially my um, focus, and I travelled a lot around America looking at deindustrializing communities and looking at um, uh, the growth of poverty in suburban America, um, but also the political uh, impact of, of this. Now, this was, you know, during Obama's re-election campaign. So um, I was a slightly dissonant, I was kind of a skunk at the party and it wasn't widely agreed with um, at the time. Um, I think people felt that Obama, quite rightly, was going to be re-elected, which indeed he was, and that also, after his re-election, the, in Obama's words, the Republican fever would break. Uh, there would be comprehensive immigration reform, big infrastructure bills, and so forth. Um, and I was a little bit more pessimistic because I felt that under the hood, that structurally, if you look at these changes, no matter how, no matter what you think of Obama, and, and I think he was a relatively good president, um, but no matter what you think of him, he wasn't really able to uh, tackle or reverse these deep-seated structural trends. And, and I think, you know, sadly, I wish I'd say otherwise, events have, have borne out my relatively pessimistic reading from from six years ago. So if, if I could, you, you describe it as pessimistic, but General Petraeus, when he was asked about Iraq, he was asked, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And he said, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I'm realistic. And the reality is very hard. And so I, I would prefer to describe it that way. So assuming you feel that you were looking at this realistically as opposed to pessimistically, can you tell us these trends have not gotten better? What's your realistic assessment of where we're going in the next 10 years unless we make a change to do something else? 
Well, a, an awful lot rides on 2020. And so, you know, if you're asking me in 2018 to look ahead, it's actually far more difficult than 2012, oddly enough, mm. um, because the difference between Trump being re-elected in 2020 uh, and Trump being repudiated is is not your average American presidential election. This is this where the stakes are high, but they're on a spectrum of, of relative differences. You think of um, Romney, Obama, for example, or even Clinton Bush Sr., Gore Bush Jr. Nothing like the differences in outcomes that you will see between a, a Trump defeat and a Trump re-election in 2020. Now, if Trump is re-elected, and history tells us an incumbent first-term president has a, a roughly 60% chance of being re-elected. If Trump is re-elected, then I think that the trends that I was concerned and many others were concerned about before 2016, which he has subsequently deepened, um, the trends that um, that were flashing red for many years before he became the Republican nominee um, will become sort of permanent features, that America will have changed course. I, right. I think 2020 would be three times more impactful than 2016 if Trump wins. So let's let's talk about that a little more. I don't want to talk about Trump so much from an American lens, but but Trump reminds a lot of people of, of Latin American populists. They're, the comparisons between him and Hugo Chavez have been written about extensively. And you have mentioned that you worry, based on what you saw in your economic reporting, that we're seeing the Latin Americanization of the American ec- economic system. Can you tell us what you meant by that, what you saw? Yes, so Latin America... For decades, well, more than more, more than decades, a century or so, a longer, in fact, has been swinging from sort of Bolivarian um, popular, populism, um, and then very orthodox crackdowns by the elites um, from one to the other in a very sort of unstable, giddying shift. There's never been a stable Latin American politics uh, until arguably recently. Um, and uh, that 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 sort of yo-yoing um, in in recent decades has really been driven by the continent's extreme inequality. It's by far the most unequal um, part of the world in terms of its Gini coefficient. Um, and so what you have there is the invention, really, but also, the sort of, I think, the perfection of um, another rather ugly phrase to add to Latin Americanization, which is Pluto populism, which is Mm. the elites managing to take on the sort of the habits and manners of the poor people. You think of Peron in Argentina, um, managing somehow to appear to be one of the people whilst pursuing measures that drastically increase the the inequality that, that fueled that populism in the first place. Now, United States is not as unequal as most Latin American economies, but it's much closer to the Latin American model than the rest of the West, and to the Latin American levels of inequality. And I believe it's therefore no accident because uh, American inequality has been getting worse, more pronounced, that you've seen a, a much more Latin American feel to American politics. Um, I, I think Trump is... People perhaps misleadingly compare him to Hitler or Mussolini. I would compare him to somebody like Peron. Mm. Um, And indeed, uh, Bolsonaro, the recently elected um, president of Brazil, who is a classic Pluto populist, calls himself the Trump of the tropics. Mm. Um, So there's a kind of two-way, you know, there's kind of a a symbiosis there now 
um, between the two. So let's, let's, I would like to um, discuss something else you've written about, which is related to what you just said. So uh, in one of your books, you mentioned about how the uh, Greenspan Commission to help solve Social Security in 1981 was an example of sort of Democrats and Republicans working together to solve our great challenges. Um, and that, of course, was not only the the people on the commission, but it was also the Republican president, the Democratic Speaker of the House, the um, the uh, Republican minor- Majority Leader Bob Dole, and Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a Democrat. So there was a lot of cross-party working. Whereas in 2010, we had the Simpson-Bowles Commission to, again, address some of our major problems. And unlike the Greenspan Commission, this one was actually more functional. They produced a lot of good ideas for how to solve our mounting challenges. But you've mentioned um, that the middle class has been hollowed out, which is hollowed out the middle of our politics. So the bipartisan commission was dead on arrival with both parties in Congress. And so what I would like to ask you is based on what you discussed about the Latin Americanization of American politics and how bad things seem to be getting in politics as, as well as economically, can you just reflect on the differences of where we've come from the Greenspan Commission to solve Social Security to the failed Simpson-Bowles Commission of 2010? So I mean, that, that's a good question. It's hard to answer in a sort of simple form. Um, I think if you measure sort of a, a, any, um, take any measure of polarization in politics uh, in terms of whether Republicans are defined as conservative Republicans and Democrats described as liberal um, Democrats, you see the middle ground, those who could cross the aisle um, and do deals without being punished by their base, shrinking almost to the to a vanishing point, particularly on the Republican side. I think there's been polarization, but again, another ugly term used by political scientists, asymmetric pol- polarization. Um, but the Democrats are now catching up. Um, partly this is because in those years between the Greenspan um, Commission and Simpson-Bowles, there's been a lot more gerrymandering mm-hmm. and it's been upheld um, by various court rulings. And so that means that um, lawmakers fear the punishment of their base rather than defeated a general election because their seats are safe. Um, so there is that. I think, though, that, you know, if you think of in 81, the kinds of Republicans who would still be familiar, um, Rockefeller Republicans, and the kinds of Democrats, blue dog uh, Democrats, who would do deals, who would who would cross the aisle, um, take some risks, but not, not what would nowadays be a sort of suicidal mission. Um, and you compare them to Jeff Flake uh, or maybe Bob Corker, um, you know, to, um, and Susan Collins, you know, it's hard to think of any other names of Republicans who've thought about crossing Trump, but, but have basically concluded, even in retirement in two of those cases, it's still not worth it. The, the level of vituperation against a traitor, against somebody who betrays your cause, the threats of doxing, you know, having your address published by online, um, and of having to change address or take measures to protect yourself, that the climate has dramatically changed, that the returns to being a constructive Madisonian um, member of, of this, this constitutional republic who makes it function have plummeted, and the returns to being a wrecker um, and being a purist and and appealing to the base have soared. And and that's a, it, it's a completely different politics today. So I'd like to follow up on that and pivot to the next question. So one thing you wrote about in your book, and you mentioned this asymmetric polarization. And if I read your book, and that's my only source of evidence, 
I one one argument is Fox News is a major contributor. There is no equivalent of Fox News on the left. This kind of purist alternate reality that um, that that has pushed for essentially twenty years, and we're now seeing the consequence of twenty years of Trump. So. Um, as, as we look at Britain, I, I'd like to move to Europe a little bit, talk about uh, Britain, France, and Germany. So as we look at Britain, the media landscape in Britain, as I have read it, um, the BBC acts there – is, there is no equivalent of the BBC here in America. And the BBC acts as sort of a, um, a, a moderating feature, a, same, a similar set of facts that everybody works with. Of course, it barely failed in Brexit, but it might be helping to fix the Brexit situation. Whereas in Italy, Italy has a media model very similar to us. And of course, so that got them Berlusconi, who has, of course, been compared to Trump as well. Um, and so I would ask you, you've been in uh, the UK more than um, many people, including me. Um, can you just tell us about the media landscape, both in a, to compare the media landscapes in Britain and the United States? And That's a very interesting question. I mean, the one thing that does strike me a lot, generally I'm, I, I've got a fairly bleak outlook on Britain, although it's it's fluid because there are so many, it's such a radically uncertain scenario. But the one thing I've sort of felt fairly upbeat about when I go back to Britain, which is fairly often compared to the United States, is precisely what you've just outlined. Um, that however much um, conservatives and, and let's say Brexiteers hate the BBC and however much Remainers hate the BBC, they're all hating the same thing. They are in the same public square. And this is something Jefferson and other founding fathers talked about a lot is for democracy, uh, for a republic, it was the terms they use, used to work, to function. You need to have a public square. You need to have a place where regardless of how much you disagree with your opponents, you, 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 you're able to argue with them in, uh, on public territory. You mentioned Patrick um, Daniel Moynihan earlier. He, he said you're entitled um, to your own opinions, but not to your own facts. And that's essentially what the, um, what the Remainers and the Brexiteers are arguing over. They're, they're arguing over the public square of the BBC. Um, so the United States, um, used to have something comparable um, in the in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It used to have Walter Cronkite. It used to have sort of very familiar mm, that's anchors. A, that's another big change from a Tip O'Neill's time. Yeah. It's a massive, and he was still around. Um, or the Ed Murrow, you know. Um, imagine the impact, or recall the impact Edward Murrow had on the McCarthyite hmm. um, Red Scare. That Actually, I, I don't know. Tell us. He... Um, um, one evening, um, or over a series of evenings, um, did an investigation into Senator Joe McCarthy's witch hunts, and you know that had that had completely paralysed America's government and Hollywood and many other. Um, and he provided the fodder that essentially finished Senator McCarthy and wow. finished the Red Scare. And this was one man on TV, a journalist, an investigative, but also a, a larger presence sort of a, a Walter Cronkite kind of figure. That that figure has vanished. Uh, there isn't a public square. There, there are many different private squares um, that aren't even sort of connected up by alleyways. There are just separate facts, separate universes. And uh, therefore, no incentive of those media organizations running their private squares to, uh, in, a, in a way, this is an analog to what I was saying about gerrymandering, is you've essentially got a gerrymandered media where the, you're catering to a base and there's no incentive to sort of have a fairness balanced, and the fair and balanced, of course, is misused by Fox, but to have a genuinely, in the true 
sense of the words, fair and balanced media where you give equal time to people who are on the other side and do your best to objectively describe the uh, disagreements or the news event. There is just no incentive in so much of the American media landscape to do that today. So let's ask a couple of quick questions. Does the BBC do that? Can you tell us, you know, we Not don't very all- well. Okay. Not very well. I mean, it's their mission to do that. Mm-hmm. And they are, of course, funded in, in a model that would be inconceivable in, in the United mm-hmm. States, um, which is a, a taxpayer's license fee, um, public funding. Um, but th- they, d- they do attempt to do that, but things have become so polarized in Britain mm. that they're kind of paralyzed. It's so, you know, th- there's a they're usefulness. They're afraid to criticize Brexit, right? They're afraid to criticize back Brexit. You find that whenever there's a panel, not whenever, but frequently when there's a panel, Nigel Farage, the uh, former leader of the UK Independence Party and a key figure in the, uh, the referendum, is on this panel. He's never been elected oh, to parliament. He's given equal airtime for people who represent parties, you know, have 30, 40% of the vote, and he's never actually had a seat in Parliament. So the, the, there is a sense that the BBC has been running scared of the populists. Um, and I think that's a very justifiable um, argument. And so maybe they're now trying to make up for it. Um, I don't know, but it's not a self-confident public broadcaster in the way that it used to be. Hmm. Okay. Um, and while we're on the subject of Britain... Uh, Britain thought it would be the greatest country on earth for a long time, and then it declined. Can you, as somebody born there, can you tell Americans what it's like to have a country that thinks it's exceptional forever and then goes through decline to less relevance? Well, we used to think God was an Englishman. Um, uh, (laughs) We're now not sure he exists. You know, if he's not an Englishman, he probably doesn't exist. Um, But, um, well, you know, I I was born in 1968, which was um, objectively – several decades after the the high noon of British power um, and decolonization had mostly occurred by then, um, there was still this sort of legacy feeling, as as you, it hasn't disappeared, of course, but there was still this legacy feeling that Britain had an outsized role where it punched above its weight. Um, uh, and chiefly that was because of its close, close relationship with the United States, with the superpower. Um, so I don't think Britain's relative decline um, points the way for the United States because there is no United States awaiting mm. the United States for it to hand the baton over to. Mm. Britain was a fairly unique transition. You know, people have written about the Thucydides trap. Yeah. Um, Thucydides trap is when, you know, there's a declining hegemon that gets challenged, uh, threatened by a rising one, and then goes to war and usually, usually use, loses. Um, that didn't happen with the transition from Britain to the United States. Um, what comes after the United States? Um, it, you know, it's, it's not the United States. So it's a very, it's a very different um, picture. There's not much light that can be shed on America's position. One thing I would say, though, is that Britain is a small island. There were sort of accidents about where the Industrial Revolution occurred, the fact that it's a naval power, and various sort of aspects, quirks of British history. Um, the United States is a continent, you know, with extraordinary resources, a much larger preponderance, population, and so forth, and a very uh, uh, unique, I think, um, tradition of innovation and um, uh, bankruptcy laws. And of um, so the, you know, the the analogy with Britain is is only useful up to a point. But I would point out that Britain, with its full territories, was was very large, and also China. Uh, was the size of the United States in in the 1790s when it was the dominant power on earth and then um, 
declined pretty quickly. So large, large countries, we do have reasons for resilience, but wouldn't you agree that we have real reasons for concern? Deep reasons for concern. And when I hear one of the things that troubles me, um, statements of American exceptionalism, oh. creedal statements, I get very worried because that is a, a sense that doesn't matter what happens on planet Earth, there's a sort of appointed constellation of fate here for, for, for the United States that nobody can alter. And that and that is fatalism. It's optimistic fatalism that will produce what, what it least expects, which is your China 1790 scenario. I think uh, optimists should try to be a little bit more realistic. I'd like to move to a positive topic. Germany, you've written a lot of um, positive things about Germany. Um, just can you tell us about maybe why Germany's having success in these populist times? Um, it's all relative, of course. By Germany's post-war standards, it's going through a crisis. Hmm. Um, I think, though, on, on the positive side, um, the Germans have a, a system of civic culture to do with their history, to do with the uniquely ghastly legacy of the Holocaust and the Nazi role in the Nazi German, Germans of educating Germans um, in political literacy and the responsibilities of citizenship. I think that's one thing. Um, and I think the fact that Austria doesn't have that and that Austria, you know, Austrians depict themselves as victims rather than uh, as uh, collaborators with Nazi Germany um, is a major reason why populism is far worse in Austria today than in, certainly than in former West Germany. Um, but I think that the um, apprenticeship, apprenticeship system um, and the vocational training that is embedded in Germany's education system is also a very important part of the answer. That Germany you know, doesn't believe everybody should graduate from a four-year college degree in order to be useful to society. And I think you know we do in the United States and, and Britain, most English-speaking countries. And I think that that is a very um, economically illiterate view of the complexities of the labor market. Um, uh, and it's also a very belittling view of those. Mm. We tend to elide people who don't have college degrees with people being unskilled. That's completely wrong. You it's can awesome. be very skilled without having a college degree. And believe me, you can be really unskilled with a college degree. Um, and I think that that gives a dignity um, and um, an economic um, viability to a lot of jobs in the service sector and in the manufacturing sector um, that, that grow out of the vocational system. And, and so I think there's less of a middle-class economic crisis. In, it's certainly having one, but it's not nearly as acute as the one we're going through. And I'd like to point out, in Germany also has a proportional voting system as opposed to the UK or the United States. And I would submit to you, and I'm curious what you think, that that proportional voting system means more potter, parties, which means more moderate politics, as opposed to our winner-take-all system. That can certainly, can certainly be true. Um, but the most extreme proportional voting system in the world is Israel's. Mm. And Israel, and well, in general, but Bibi Netanyahu in particular, are really architects, they're pioneers of some of this right-wing populism. Mm. You know, his, the, the small parties, the extreme religious parties, the orthodox parties have held the whip hand over coalition formations mm that maybe they wouldn't have if there'd been a first-past-the-post system. So I, I, I think your point's a good one, up to a point. Right. Um, I'm reluctant to look at process mm. as, the, as the problem here, because I think if you look across the West, all the different political systems are in one way or another undergoing profound crises of legitimacy. There's something deeper than that going on that we have in common. 
Two more questions, three if we can get to it. France. France, the the city elite got what they wanted, a moderate intellectual who's going to implement liberal ideas, fix out-of-control spending, as well as climate change. There are riots. People are upset. His approval rating's in the 20s. Can you reflect on France? I have to say, I was a little bit skeptical about the depth of Emmanuel Macron's mandate. I think he was a brilliant campaigner. He campaigned in poetry, as they say. Um, there was something Obama-esque about his ability to sort of define the moment. But the breadth, I think, of his coalition, well, of his party, rather, and its victory, um, was also tied to its shallowness. Um, he he was all things to all people. And you can be that mm-hmm. on the campaign trail. But when you govern, you govern in prose, not poetry. And uh, the perception in France has been he's been governing for the rich. He abolished the wealth tax. Mm. Um, he's loosened up labor laws, um, which I think have, is actually necessary. But the perception is it's in favor of the rich. And you haven't seen any improvement in the median incomes of La, La France Profonde, you know, the people out there who live in the small towns and the rural areas. Um, who find it very hard to make ends meet. Um, so, you know, as I said earlier, there's a Tolstoyan aspect to us. We're each unhappy in our in our unique ways, um, democratically. And the French are very unique in the way they express their unhappiness. But there is something in common there too. Um, this is the small towns, the rural areas, the suburbs to some degree. Um, mostly it's economic, but it's easy to whip that into xenophobic. It's quite easy to do that. Uh, uh, and I think it's very hard for us to do something we really must do, which is maintain the distinction between people who are frustrated and feel excluded economically and people who are racist. Some of them can be turned into the latter, but we shouldn't dismiss it all as racism. I totally agree. General Petraeus, in, when he solved Iraq, did realize that only 3 to 4% of the insurgents were actually a problem. Everybody else was just choosing between bad options and could be rip, riled up under the wrong, wrong circumstances, such as the tragedy there. My last question for you. Um, what message, what final message for today do you have uh, for those in struggling Western democracies? Um, for people who are struggling or people who... Um... People who are trying to fix their struggling countries. Um, I would love to give a sort of Hail Mary pass, um, you know, that, that could sort of change the situation, but this is a complex problem. It's not caused by any one particular, um, and, and, you know, there are many fingerprints on this dagger. Um, so, uh, I, I, you know, this is about a patient process of getting people to participate, restoring faith in the system and trust in institutions. And that can't happen unless, A, they get involved in them, and B, the institutions become more responsive. It's a, it's a complex process. The decline in trust is across the board, across the West, um, for public, for politics, for public institutions, for media. Um, and trust, I think, is the measure of it's like circulation in a, in a human body if you don't if you have declining trust you have you know declining blood circulation that your chances of a heart seizure are, a coronary are much greater we have to reinvigorate our system uh my own view is that we cannot do this without a seriously much better progressive tax system there's got to be more redistribution of wealth and investment in people so let me follow up with one more Churchill said, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Just briefly, 
Is he right? Uh, yes, I think that America's history has shown that. Okay. I mean, he was thinking of isolationism followed by intervention in the Second World War. Um, and it had tried that. It had tried the ostrich in the sand approach, and that didn't work. Um, uh, my concern is that in today's world, exhausting all the alternatives is taking quite a long time, and we cannot afford <sighs> we it. can't. On that note, I agree. Ed Luce, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Demo Crises podcast. And remember, the difference between impossible and possible is one. For more content like this, we'd be grateful if you did at least one of three things. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, or donate to us on Patreon. Demo Crises is hosted by me, Rob Cohen, and produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo.